Hey friends, you're on the Insecurity Project with Jamin. Uh, today I've got a different episode. Uh, my friend Sean is going to interview me. Now, Sean and I came up with this idea a little while ago that we would interview each other on each other's show and that it might provide our listeners a different insight into who we are and what we're doing that you may not have ever heard before. So Sean runs a, a scaling up podcast and business, doing some amazing stuff based in Brisbane. And uh, yeah, you can check out my interview of him on his show by looking up the Scale Up podcast. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna hand over to Sean. You're in his. I'm in his hands. You're in his hands, and uh, he's gonna follow his curiosity around uh, who I am and the work that I'm doing. And I reckon this could be a really interesting and useful conversation. So, Sean, over to you. Thank you, mate. Well, it is an interesting and strangely vulnerable thing to be uh, on your own podcast interviewed by somebody else in somebody else's hands with no idea where it's going to go. Which no is, idea uh, at all. <laughs> which is exciting. Uh, well, thanks for having me on, mate, because I've uh, I've followed you for years and uh, I've always really respected the work you do. So great for me to get an opportunity to bring my curiosity to uh, to your podcast and maybe um, people will learn a few things about you that maybe they didn't know uh, as well, which would be cool. Um, I would actually like to start, though, because we are recording this in April of 23, and um, I saw, you know, I've got, I th we have some pretty sim similar age kids uh, in our lives, and I saw that you had just been on a trip to the States, both for work, but looked like you got some pretty amazing personal experiences um, in there. Can you just give me just a quick summary of maybe some of the more um, poignant personal experiences, particularly from a family perspective, and what you think that's done perhaps to the level of uh, security or confidence or self-assurity of your own of your own kids? Yeah, so I took my boy, my 16-year-old son. Like, I, I love the idea that life is for living. I, I love the idea that uh, to go where the life is is a really great orienting principle for life. It's often convenient, inconvenient and, um, you know, well, what's what's the word? Impractical is probably the better word to go where the life is because there's a bunch of reasons why that doesn't work like that or no. Well, that's it'd be awesome to do this, but it costs too much or or... Um, there's a bunch of logistics that don't work out, but I don't know. When I got the invita invitation to speak at a convention in Vegas, I just thought, imagine if I could find a way to bring my son with me. Um, <laughs> I, I reckon just that could only do good things for him to give him an experience of the world, and we'd have a lot of fun together. Um, typically, he and I do a trip together twice a year. Uh, we'll go mountain bike riding somewhere, or we've been you know, we've done a bunch of cool trips around the country, but never overseas. And so anyway, I thought, imagine pulling it off and then pitching it to my wife around the cost involved. And she was like, oh boy, well, <laughs> I was confident I could find a way to cover the cost through uh, raising revenue in the States through the work I was doing. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, yeah, I think think in hindsight, it'll, it'll prove to be probably the best parenting decision of my life to have taken him on the trip because not only did we get to the U.S., and then my brother and his family, they run an orphanage in Guatemala. I've been doing so for 13 years. And it, we'd always talked about visiting there one day and it just worked out that we were able to tack that on to the end of the trip. So to get over there as well, uh, see the work that they're doing and not only have an experience of um, their life-changing work in, in that nation, but to get to trip around Guatemala and see a part of the world that is quite exotic and and incredibly beautiful so back to your question some of the more poignant moments on yeah. that trip particularly for your son you know well yeah i think one of them in particular you know 16 year old boy um i i, I think the generalization stands true in my family that 
you know, girls tend to develop emotional intelligence more quickly than do boys. That's certainly been true for my kids. And so my son's more insular, um, unsure of himself, uh, more likely to be swayed by the loudest voice and, and unsure that his voice matters. And so tends to take a back, back seat. And one of the things he found most surprising around the interactions we had with people in the US was how friendly they were. And he just was amazed. Like we met some amazing people just in the line for restaurants or while waited to get on the Ferris wheel at Atlanta or, um, you know, different parts of the, we went on a bus tour to the Grand Canyon and you just meet people and strike up a conversation. And so he was astounded about how friendly people were. And I said, well, did you notice if you, if you think about all the interactions we've had with friendly people, did you know what preceded their friendliness? Did you notice that? And he thought, actually, I think you engaged in that. I think you actually showed up and asked them a question, lent into their world, and then they responded well. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. They weren't, they didn't start it. None of them started it. I started it. Mm-hmm. And I expected them to be friendly. And I expected that they would enjoy my company. And guess what they did? <laughs> and so that was a really interesting experience for him because um I could see that meant a lot to him. And then uh, he had an opportunity to try that out on a flight. We're flying Southwest. You know, you don't get your own seat. So we weren't sitting together. And I watched him engage the person on his left and right and strike up a conversation, which is something he would never have done, not in a million years. Uh, And we're so nervous around not flying together, but here he was trying it out. All right, see if it works. If If you expect people to like you, if you are friendly to them, how do they respond? So I reckon that life lesson uh, will stick with him forever. That's something that you can't, uh, you know, that can't be taught in a book. It's not something that you could beat your kids over the head with. In you know, I've told them a thousand times that they should just, you know, take the first step until I actually experience it and go, oh, wow, that really worked for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden it becomes an opportunity for the future. Yeah. And then uh, just watching him deal with circumstances that he couldn't control, I often critique him and saying, he has a very narrow bandwidth for happiness. So the moment something is outside of his perfect expectation of life, he doesn't know how to cope. And so traveling the world, you're in queues, things get delayed, mm-hmm. people are doing their own thing. You're waiting a lot of the time. There's a lot of things that are not in that narrow bandwidth of a perfect experience. And so watching him get frustrated and impatient early on, but by the end of the two weeks, just watching him relax and be okay with uncertainty and be okay to be patient and be okay to let things happen around him and just realize he had a lot more internal resourcefulness to cope with things outside a very narrow expectation. So that was really cool too. I think it's, uh, I think it's quite fascinating for, you know, for your audience to hear how, I mean, you, you have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, as a result of spending a lot of time thinking about other people's insecurity and how to overcome it and so on, it naturally, of course, flows into your family life, but none of us are perfect parents. We, you know, we can have uh, we can have all the knowledge in the world, and like sometimes you're like, how how do I not get this thing to land with my child? Like it's such a because you take it so personally, you want to give them all of the um, the opportunity and the benefit of your of your wisdom, but they're also your kids, and so some stuff they will just you know shut down to some of the stuff like oh dad's talking about something again. It's like mm. I don't even listen to dad's podcast. Like why am I listening to this conversation? <laughs> Um, what was it, what was it like growing up in your family 
Jamin. And I'm, I'm interested in the context of how that has impacted how you parent your children. Hmm. Uh, well, I had a, a really loving family. Still have a great relationship with my parents. Uh, I was the firstborn. So I think the generalization generalization is true with firstborn firstborns. They get, you know, they're more likely to be responsible and have a bit of a leadership uh, bent to their character because you, you, you're going first a lot of the time. Um, so I think my parents instructed me much more through modeling than conversation. I don't really recall whether they did or not. I don't recall yeah. the life lessons coming through them sitting me down and explaining things. I just I feel like what I got from my parents was watching them live their life, watching them do marriage, watching them handle people, how they made decisions. And so I, I think by and large their map of the world and their decision-making framework was something that I found very attractive um, and, and greatly benefited from. Uh, I think I think in reflection on how that impacted me, like everyone's parents, you get given their map of the world and their map of the world's great and then it has limitations. Mm. So I, I love thinking about the fact that it's our job to renegotiate that map to remap it and to expand it and to um, add more detail and more color and, and make it a more accurate representation of the world. And so therefore to go beyond them, to stand on their shoulders and do things they, they could never have done, whether they understand it or not. Yeah. So I've had some a few challenging experiences with my parents where they've not understood the direction I've taken and um, they felt unsettled about that or or unsure about what I'm doing. And I've always felt really relaxed to go beyond them and just saying, that's of course what you'd want me to do. You want me to stand on your shoulders to utilize the gift you've given me and go beyond you. So you'll be okay. Even if I scare you, even if I'm doing things you will never do, that is it. That is all you'd want for me. Um, is that a conversation you've had with them? Yeah, I have. It's been a couple of times, especially yeah. coming out of the church. So I was, you know, I was, um, they were very Christian. I grew up in the Christian home, loved that, made a lot of sense to me. I was the youth pastor at my church at, yep. at 19, and the senior pastor at 23. So in a big extended Christian family, I was, you know, I'd kind of hit the pinnacle to be the pastor mm -hmm. as a young man. That's um, that's the top. Mm -hmm. And so then to inform my parents that I was no longer going to be the pastor, I was going to be the coach and to venture out of that world into the business world there wasn't really a precedent for that or a way of understanding that so they were very nervous felt like as as most of my extended family did and most of my church and most of my friends the only way of understanding a moving away from ministry is that has to be bad that has to be rebellious reckless selfish something's gone wrong i'm i'm running away from calling and and purpose now so that's the only way that they could possibly understand that. Um, so, yeah, I had to have a, a couple of direct conversations to say, okay, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm actually really comfortable with who I am and this is I'm still the same person with the same passions. This is bigger and better than it's ever been and I feel more aligned to mission and calling and purpose than ever before and, yeah, it, it looks very different. Um, what what made you want to make that change? And uh, I don't know whether we've actually ever talked about this, but my father also you know, grew up in missionary and 
uh, well, you know, was um, was in the seminary when he was a teenager and became a priest and worked overseas as a missionary uh, in in all sorts of places and probably at a similar age, I think was maybe in a similar position but in different um, countries and then came back to Australia and decided actually sorry left the Philippines decided to leave um, the priesthood and started a life in service in um, in government and I remember you know conversations with my dad who's the the i guess his church and the impact on his family was you know his family felt an incredible amount of shame which he sort of carried as this burden it's like it wasn't it wasn't all of a sudden about him it was like what's everybody going to think of us um <laughs> it was such it was yeah as you said it was sort of unprecedented no one had really done it before or kind of walked that path but he felt very sure that it was the right path um for him what what made you was there a turning point was there a significant event what what was preceded your decision to go this is time for me to go and to, to choose this new path. Um, yeah, there's probably a few things. I, I'm naturally a very, very pragmatic and, and curious person. I'm a very wholehearted person. So things have to feel, I have to be 100% committed to something in order to be able to do it. The moment something doesn't make sense to me, the moment something isn't right in the pocket, and to allow me wholeheartedness, I can't do it. I just mm. cannot be engaged if I lose heart for something. I cannot play lip service to a bunch of rules that I don't believe in. So I think that's a dangerous mix inside an institution because eventually I'm on my way out. I'm, I'm going to ask too many questions at some point. I'm going to be too curious. I'm going to go, why do we have to do it like that? We've always done it like that. Yeah, but do we have to do it like that? Yeah, we, you know, it's, there's, there's some problems. So I think... Uh, one good question leads to two. Two good questions lead to five, and before you know it, you are on a path of deconstructing your your map of the world. Mm. Uh, so, I, you know, I never in I never imagined in a million years that it would be possible for for me to be anything other than a pastor for you know for most of my twenties and early thirties. I just thought this is this is me. This is what I was born to do. The the, the sense of wholeheartedness, um, and yet. As I well, I think probably um, there were. I got exposed to a bunch of really beautiful books that just helped me think through some stuff that I found troubling around the church setup, mm -hmm. and um, helped me go. Well, here's the thing, Jamin. You you were you were born into a very narrow experience of faith, and it it made sense to you, and you loved it. Um, but you can't imagine that, that that's actually the whole picture. What if you were born into a Muslim home and your parents? Uh, loved the Quran and felt, um, you know, the the religion of Islam answered all their questions. You probably would have loved that just as much, but it happened mm -hmm. that you got born here with these parents, with this map of the world, and you loved that. So, um, but could you imagine it? It might not describe the whole picture. It might not be the complete map. And so, just some beautiful books that have made me be uh, more open and humble and aware of the fact that. Uh, I yeah I couldn't possibly be understanding the whole picture, um, and then a mentor of mine I invited to run a spiritual retreat for our church community, and he brought some coaching frameworks and modalities to that to help mm -hmm. us do some personal development in the in the experience of spiritual development. And I was gobsmacked. I I'd I'd always felt troubled that the tendency of people in my church and and largely within the Christian world was to outsource responsibility for change onto God. And I mean, I even saw this in Vegas the other day. There was this huge billboard uh, from a mob called He Gets Us. I think that's their hashtag. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing said, Jesus did not want us to think like adults. 
and the hashtag was be like a child. And so this idea that childlike faith is the pinnacle of spirituality mm. is just pure acceptance. Don't question. It's been figured out for you. It's it's trust and obey. It's trust don't lean onto your own thinking, mm. you, you know, just do what you're told. That's the safest place. You, you don't know how to do things. So mm. a, a good child to parent relationship is built on trust and obey. Um, and that's seen as the pinnacle of spirituality, which you know, there's a there's a case for why that is that is good, but it, to think through that, uh, it's very problematic. Um, works well for institutions and organisations because if you're mm. going to be a child, you won't question, or if you do question, and the answer is just because this is how it is. Well, you're a child, so how are you supposed to think any better than that? Mm. But I think it's very destructive for the human being and the human psyche to remain a child. Um, I think we're supposed to grow up and be adults, and that means thinking and using our brain and taking responsibility. So I'd always found it hard growing up that the the idea for change was always put onto God. If I pray, if I believe, if I have faith, if I trust and obey, God will magically, mysteriously take care of all the mess in my life and I'll be okay. The idea of me contributing, participating, taking responsibility was always seen as too secular or outside the realms of faith. Um and I'd always been troubled by that. That just didn't make any sense to me. And so then when I got introduced to a, some coaching frameworks, which was all about awareness and responsibility and choice and just understanding the wonder of what it meant to be a, a functional human being and, mm -hmm. and realizing, you know, the two greatest gifts we've been given as humans is choice and responsibility. But most people want to give them back and live with the illusion of no choice and blame an excuse instead. So um, that changed me. That seeing those models was like, this is a missing technology. Mm. Um, this belongs in my world and I have to understand more about this. And so I still thought I could hold it all together. So I went and straight away did a diploma in life coaching. Um, a, a year later, I'd written my first book, 12 Coaching Conversations Every Disciple Must Have, which was a way of integrating the coaching modality into a, an authentic discipleship. Mm. It wasn't well received, probably wasn't very well written <laughs> either, but... <laughs> Didn't go very well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, have you, Jamin, had to since then, have you had, you know, one of the things I was curious about was whether there are certain people, if we kind of think about the context of where this leading into your into the work that you do today, are there certain groups of people based on their background, their culture, you know, perhaps their religious um, beliefs that present with, common traits or common issues or are more difficult um, to to coach and deal with their insecurity because of, you know, some sort of inherent conflict between, you know, two ideologies like the one that you just described, like their sense of responsibility versus their sense of faith. Have you have you experienced that or have you noticed that? How does that play out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I still coach um, a, a lot of people with a faith background and I, know I would say every time Christians are harder to coach than non-Christians. Right. And so how do you deal with that? How do you, how do well, you? I, I deal with it how I deal with every situation. I am wholehearted and I I serve at a very high level. And so, but I got asked twice, like in the last six months from Christian clients, I got asked if I was the devil. Like we're, we're halfway <laughs> through the coaching and we, we're diving into some <laughs> some scary 
unknown parts. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just asking some questions that have not been asked of them before and mm-hmm. helping them reflect on the map of the world they've inherited and uh, not intentionally trying to ruin their life or take anything from them, just yeah. um, examining. It, to me, if yeah. you can examine anything. If, yeah. if the structure has integrity and you examine it, well, then you keep it as it is. But yes. if yeah. you examine it and you could find a better way, a, a more accurate representation, well, then you get to upgrade. But yeah, I got to ask, Damon, are you actually the devil? Like, are you are you sent to me to ruin my life and are you a dangerous human being that will lead me astray? Well, what was your response to that? I said, well, what would the devil say to the, that answer? <laughs> the devil would probably say, no. Nah. So I don't know. You'll have to work it out for yourself. <laughs> so, But I think, yeah, some of the, the ugly theology around, um, well, probably the, the number one predicament for a number of Christians is back to human nature. Um, are people inherently good or inherently bad? Mm. So I think Christianity has contributed an extraordinary amount to the world and is a, in many ways a, a really lovely operating system, a sense-making paradigm. But the ugliest part of it, without a doubt, is, is the notion that we are inherently bad, deserving of punishment. There is nothing good in us. So the sooner we we you know surrender our humanity and completely trust in a divine being to run our lives for us. That's the safest way we could possibly live. Um, that's a tragedy in my mind and mm. and works directly against the, the coaching ideology of responsibility and choice because if I'm inherently bad, how could I ever trust myself to know what's right or wrong? Mm. I love this. I love the, I love the context. I remember when I first learned about uh, neuro-linguistic programming, you know, which you know, it was probably back in the, um, I don't know, it must have been like mid nineties or something. And this concept um, was presented to me, which was that, you know, all of your beliefs are essentially convenient assumptions, um, none of which are true and none of which, you know, in every single circumstance, there is somebody else who believes exactly the opposite and can find just as many examples as to why their belief is true and yours is incorrect and vice versa. And so actually it's not about the belief and it's not about whether it's right or wrong. It's actually just about does it work for you? You know, if you think about the study of consequences and you think about all the possible impacts, if I if I was to adopt that belief, what's the impact, you know, in terms of positive or negative consequences for me, for the people I care about, for the world, for my community, for my friends, you know, so on and so on. Um, and that actually you get to choose. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, they're just a convenient set of assumptions that at some point you've adopted, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And so why not take a step back into your, into your using your language, kind of examine it and hold it up under the light and go, do I like this? Does it serve me? Is it helpful for me? Or actually maybe is there an alternative um, way of thinking about the world that might build a map that actually I enjoy the outcomes of more and perhaps has broader, more positive consequences? Um, yeah, I, I remember the day I kind of encountered that line of thinking too as part of my coach training and it floored me. And yeah. I, well, I resisted it early on. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Well, except, you know, for absolute truth and the truth about God and, <laughs> You know, obviously that doesn't. Yeah, that's that's not included. Yeah, (laughs) but then just to go, hang on a minute. Everything, nothing has meaning except the meaning you give it. Hang on a minute. Yeah, Um, it just knocked me for six. Unpacking my world. Oh boy, (laughs) boy. up in the air. (laughs) (laughs) Where do I want this to land? Um, Yeah, I might ask you some questions, um, Jamin, about because I'm really interested in your your sort of set of beliefs and philosophies and how they impact the world um, that you think about in terms of and the work that you do around insecurity, but also where some of the boundaries lie like 
you know, is, you know, I've, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, self-doubt, you know, can create a lot of positive, um, you know, a lot of positive movement away from stuff like, you know, being scared of stuff is natural and, you know, being afraid of things um, can really force us to, you know, prepare and to get ready and so on. So is this, I mean, is there such a thing as healthy self-doubt versus destructive insecurity? Like, is there a, is there like a pendulum somewhere here where there's like a line that you cross over and all of a sudden you've moved from, I know there's like positive consequences versus negative. Can you talk to me about that? I think there really is. I like to think of self-doubt as just the accurate indicator of the limit of my skill or experience. So, What's an example of that? Sorry? What would be an example of that? Well, so like um, uh, if if I went rock climbing today and had to scale a a cliff free, free climbing, and you know there are plenty of people that can free climb. If I didn't have some severe self doubt about my ability to safely navigate that mountain without the aid of ropes, then mm. I would be a crazy person. So mm. now I could. So that doesn't make me a bad person if I doubt that my ability to get up that mountain. And I get to decide: is this a goal that I would love to pursue? And if it is, then there's some work to do. There's some skill to upgrade. Um, so I could come back in five years as my goal stayed. One day I'll have developed enough skill and confidence to be able to scale this mountain without ropes confidently. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as opposed to, uh, you know, I am I have a message to share to the world, but I'm afraid, I doubt that anyone would ever receive it from me and that I am worthy of sharing that message. Like that, That's a disaster. That's, yeah. that's of no value. That's a tragedy for you and the world. Mm-hmm. So that has to be eradicated completely. But, but yeah, the first time I would love, I would love one day to get up in front of a room and be able to hold them in my hands and and craft a message that inspire them and move them. And I've never done that before. If you didn't feel self doubt around your capacity to do that, you're delusional. So <laughs> learn some skills, understand the science of public speaking, understand yeah. what you would need to do, develop your your craft so that you could do that effectively. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can't do it today, the first, on your first attempt, does not make you a bad person. That mm-hmm. that self doubt, lovely, useful, instructive. Does that make sense? Yeah, and then if you then get to the point where you've gone and done all that work, and then you still get to the point where you can't get on stage, that's maybe a different matter. Like, okay, well, Look, you've now bizarre. got the skill set. You now you've got the resources. Now you've got. You may not have the experience yet, but you are prepared enough. Like, when is when is enough going to be enough? Like, at what point do you? step off that precipice and take some risk and put yourself in that sort of cognitive dissonance, that space between, you know, what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable, but maybe not all the way into petrifying fear because actually the risk is so great or you're so concerned about, you know, that there's the growth in that sort of gray zone, right? Well, there is. And I can remember the first time I thought about when I started my coaching business and I'm working with some pretty cool people. And then I, I thought about what would be my ambition, who would I like to work with? And it was always, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to coach people who are making a difference in the world. So the influencers, the decision makers, the the leaders. And the first time I thought about that, it really terrified me because I'm like, well, I don't really know how to do that. But I remember the first time in my mind, I thought, hmm, you could literally put me in the room with any single human on the face of the earth, any world leader, any elite sports person, any captain of industry, and and I, I'm looking at my own self. We're going. There is not a skerrick of doubt in my mind that I could serve that person. Yeah. Um, 
So I, even though I've not done that before, I have not coached that level of, of human being. I've not been in that room. Yeah, put me in that room straight away and I'm relaxed and present and able to serve them wholeheartedly. So um, that was a really beautiful bit of self-reflection going, okay. <laughs> that's. But if you'd, if you'd believed that on day one after you just had the lights turned on for coaching uh, and gone, coaching is amazing. I need to start coaching you know Nelson Mandela, or you know, like I've got a lot. Would would you have felt like the okay, game? Maybe that's 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 delusional, of course. Hundred percent delusional, dangerous. Yeah, um, and going to end in tears. Mm. You and Nelson. So you mentioned something that you said before was um, a word that you used was eradicated completely. Mm. What is your philosophy on the on the? Uh, what's the right word? The the permanency, uh, the, the the cure mm. to insecurity. You know, is it something that once you've, if you're, you know, if you're stuck, you're facing a lot of it. I've come and seen Jamin, and and it's really, you know, un, unblocked. You know, I've got to change my perspective. I've got new tools. I've got new strategies. Is there a point where you notice that people feel like it's something they never have to think about again? They don't deal with again, or does it become a ongoing, you know, maintenance, conscious effort, like how sort of, you know, in inverted commas, permanent, curable um, is insecurity mm. in the way that you think about it? Yeah, the, the aim is to be completely unhindered by doubt, fear, insecurity, limiting beliefs in your current level of growth. So to be able to show up here, present and unguarded, nothing to prove, nothing to defend. Um, when you do that, though, invariably your life expands. Mm. And you go beyond what you've ever gone before before, and therefore you will bang your head on the next level of limiting belief and a more subtle and nuanced form of story that says I was, I'm this good but not that good. I could work with these people but not those people. I could earn this amount of money but not that amount of money. Um, and so the same seven practices that eradicated that last insecurity at that level of growth will be the same seven practices that eradicated it again at this level. So I love Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and particular his language around it's just another one of those. So the way he structured his life is when you go through a challenge to deconstruct it, understand what kind of challenge it is, what are the principles that help you overcome this challenge, and then store it as a principle that doesn't require, it doesn't matter about the context. So when you face another one of those, even though it's a slightly different circumstance, it's a similar it's a similar challenge. So then you know which tool to draw from to um, apply to this same dilemma. So I think that's that's with coaching clients. They watch themselves do it for the first time and they see dramatic transformation and then they go, hang on, um, yeah, now I'm free and I'm growing. Okay, well, the next time I'm insecure, that's not evidence of regression. That's evidence of great growth. That, that must mean my world's bigger now and now I'm I'm hitting a story, an assumption about myself that previously wasn't the limiting factor but now is because I'm playing at a higher level. So great. It's another one of those. I know how to solve insecurity problems, to solve them completely for my current level of growth. That's such an interesting um, context. So what does that mean then for you? Because you are now at a stage you just mentioned that you are you're comfortable to put in front of any world leader, any, you know, any, anyone, and you know that you could serve them fully and completely. What does that mean that you feel insecure about at the moment? Like what is the next level for you? Or if, if there is, if there is an absence of insecurity, does that mean you're not pushing hard enough against the next boundary? Like what does that mean for you for actually for Jamin Fraser? Yeah, great. So 
the the coaching I do. I often tell people I'm really bored as a coach most of the time. <laughs> and so 15,000 coaching hours will do that to a person. And so people come to me feeling like their problem is really special and unique and it never is. And, yeah. and so I just draw them out of their story into process. And so I just would find it very, you know, impossible to feel inadequate around my ability to serve anyone on the planet right now. I just couldn't think of a scenario where someone goes, oh, wow, and now I'm questioning whether I'm enough as a coach to be able to serve that. Um, but coaching is only one of the things that I'm doing. So I, I I love to think of myself as a writer, mm. and that's the central organizing principle, and that's a relatively new development for me. That's probably only two years old, okay. that distinction. I'm a writer and off the back of my writing, I speak about what I write, and then I get to coach the principles that I've written about. So um, coaching is the thing I've developed most. I have the most skill in, the most experience in. Um, but writing and speaking are, are things that I, I love but have far less experience and perhaps less skill in. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the area that I'm pushing the most, that I'm exploring new horizons in. I'm writing my first novel. So I've never done that before. I, in my mind, I feel like I've got a story to tell and I'm learning the skill of storytelling to, to write a good novel. But um, there's in the process of that, there's limiting thinking. It's like, well, you know, you don't know how to do this, Jamin. So are you sure that you have what it takes? Mm. Um and the the ability to be on large stages at at conferences and conventions and to be in the room with with key people, you know, there's there's I've had limited experience of that. I've had some great experiences, but in terms of what I think I'm capable of or what I'd love to have happen, there's far more to come. Mm. So they would be the areas where I'm constantly navigating the assumptions I've made about who I am and what I can have and the level I can play at. If we were to go out. But yeah, there's obviously going to be a period of growth in which you're you know, developing that skill and building those experiences and building that confidence in that stage. What, what's beyond that? So after you feel like you've got to the stage with your writing and your speaking that you're at now with your coaching, what do you think is going to come after that? Uh, well, I, I am a global citizen. I, I feel deeply compelled to contribute to the world's most significant and important problems. Um, so beyond that, it's it's being in the room with um, the people charged with uh, climate, sorting climate change issues and global economic inequality and um, the, the dilemma of huge cities and how those cities are sustainable with, with finding energy and housing and food for a growing and aging population, you know that's that's where I'm playing, and that's that's all. That's all. The only place I'm heading is uh, yeah. is is that kind of work in the world. I love that. That's amazing. Um, it feels like, therefore, there's just a really long period of constant insecurity uh, ahead of you, but in in a way that you look forward to, you know, because every as you said, every single one of them is about. What is my current level of growth? And therefore, yeah. if I'm actually not feeling any tension, then I'm not growing. Um, exactly right. Yeah. I always, I always, somebody said to me a long time ago that there's no, there is no neutral, like there's only sort of forward and backward. Like, for example, in the context of relationships, you know, every interaction either takes you, takes that relationship forward or it takes it backward. It doesn't stay the same. There is no same. It's same as backwards um, because it should I, be going forwards. Well, I agree. I think the law of entropy would prove that that's true. Every system is, decaying unless you 
re-energize it put energy back in so you mm. can't there is no status there's, there's not anything nothing staying the same if it's staying the same it's deteriorating so yeah absolutely Can i ask i mean you've had so many um coaching hours around insecurity i'm really interested in some of the the challenges and the limits and the boundaries um of that have you ever had a client you know present whose issues were so i don't know if it's this may not be a correlative um statement but whose issues were so deep and they were so resistant to change that they couldn't they couldn't or they wouldn't change and they stayed and held that map of the world tightly and just would not let it go of course absolutely yeah it's most humans will not navigate their way out of the map they created for themselves when they were children Mm. Um, yeah it's the it's by far the exception not the norm that humans are healed and whole and and transform themselves so yeah there's been clients who have overestimated their readiness for change and got scared and run away mm-hmm. and, and chosen the comfort of their prison rather than the uncertainty of the freedom they seek so yeah absolutely and did you is how you've experienced that as a coach because obviously you know you sort of built to serve and you you, you want to see people step in and you know to overcome the um, the issue how did that affect you as a coach maybe when you were you know earliest days starting out and how you allowed that to play in your own mind versus how you might think about that now well, i definitely impacted me early on uh from a number of levels obviously the intention to serve and the the promise i have what it, i have what you need i have the ability to help you and so putting too much of an emphasis on my own ability and misunderstanding the process of change so mm. it, i didn't you know, the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity is kind of developed halfway through my coaching experience as I've learned. And to the whole dynamic around get help from someone who doesn't care about you, that was an, an evolutionary discovery, um, a painful one, <laughs> and discovered by bringing too much caring and wanting and thinking that's what I needed to to really be the energy that required a change. Um so yeah, I definitely took it personally early on and I realized it wasn't good for business. You know, early on you want to get some wins on the board. And so if you if you promise you can help a client and it turns out that you can't, then what story are they telling about you and, and are you really cut out for this and how are you going to generate more work if you can't do the thing you said you're going to do and why are people paying for your services if it's not getting the result that they paid for? So yeah, there's a whole bunch of pain and suffering down that road. Um, but yeah, I, that... Uh, that is my superpower um, probably more than anything as a coach is just a clean space to say, mm-hmm. um, I know I'm an excellent coach. I really do. And I'll still know I'm an excellent coach, even if you do not decide Jeez. to change. And <laughs> I have, I have everything you need. And, and I said it once on a, a, a video, um, I had a client who got scared and ran away after one month of coaching and um, he deflected his decision. Obviously, he didn't have, he wasn't taking responsibility for it was his fault he was running away. He, he wanted to blame me as a coach and said, mm-hmm. Jamie, in the first two coaching sessions we had, you were walking your dog. I do all my coaching over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I'm fine, you know, coaching while I'm in the car, coaching while I'm walking. Um, and so this, these two days I was walking the dog. So perhaps there was a little bit of background noise. Um, but he said, yeah, you weren't present. You were not present enough for me as a coach. And so that's why I'm not getting the breakthrough and we're not moving on. And I said, well, that's not that's not accurate at all. I have enough skill in my little finger 
to solve this problem for you. It's a very boring, predictable problem. I could <laughs> coach you while I am asleep. And I often do coach people in my dreams while I'm asleep with great precision. So the limiting factor is not my coaching, I promise you. If you would like to change, I know how, and it's really simple. So, um, <laughs> and just being really comfortable with that, just going, oh, well, and then that's sad for him. But but it kind of speaks to the high stakes nature of personal change. It's called the hero's journey for a reason. Mm. Heroes are going to do something impossible. And there's every chance they'll die along the way, which is why we watch those stories and, and read those books, because it's the tension. It doesn't look like Frodo's ever going to complete the mission. That's why we watch three Lord of the Rings movies. If it was straightforward and given and predictable, what's the point? You know how it's going to end. Mm. So uh yeah but I, I certainly don't take it personally at all now and i i have fun and i i yeah I, I bring that fun and that cheekiness in all along just to go don't you can't confuse me for someone who cares about you i'm not invested in your outcome so <laughs> oh, i love it. I mean, it is such a great um principle in terms of the freedom and the confidence that it creates in you because actually that playfulness also allows you to bring your most creative self because you're not wedded into it. You are able to be dissociated from it. And from that space, you have so many more options um, because you don't care about the outcome. How do you, how do you deal with clients that are, um, you know, quite uh, built to self-diagnose and self-assess and self-coach and they come to you with like a perfectly wrapped up sort of story. Okay, Jamin, I really want you to coach me, but I can tell you exactly what's wrong. I've done all these things. I've thought about, I've asked myself these seven questions. I'm this the stage and you're kind of going, well, okay. But do you, do you get clients who kind of come with that sort of ready-made um, package? What, what do you do with a client like that? How do you help them you know, let go and, and trust in the space? And, and The way that I've solved that problem is to create a, a difficult barrier to entry to start coaching with me in the first place. Right. So I'm more likely to discourage people to work with me than encourage them. I'm like, eh, are you sure? Like, it's going to be really hard and really expensive and this is going to hurt. <laughs> you're not going to like me. So I don't need to coach you. Uh, so it sounds like you're fine on your own. Um, you said, yeah, but I, that's what that would be my approach. If someone goes, no, actually, Damon, I know that I need you. Then, okay, well, then why would you be banging on about your strategy? Because clearly that hasn't worked for you. So let's not talk about that ever again <laughs> and just set the rules from the start. Yeah. And I just say, look, I'm not going to work harder than you too, by the way. So why would I work harder than you? I'm already secure. I've already solved this problem. So I know how to do it. If you would like me to help, you're going to have to put in some energy. So don't come defending or justifying your position or telling me all your great strategies about how you think about this because that hasn't worked. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't be in just, this conversation. Yeah, just push push it really hard from the start. If I don't have leverage, I've got nothing. So yeah. change is freaking hard. Yeah. Most people will never find a way to change. So I have to create maximum leverage from the very start. And <clears> I do that by creating a high barrier to entry to work with me so that yeah. when people come, they're like, all right, I'm, I'm in. Yeah. My resistance has been worn down already. Let's do the thing that I've never yeah. been able to do that I know I need to do. Hit me between the eyes. Let's go hard and fast and deep. Cool. Well, let's, let's have some fun. I remember hearing Tony Robbins a long time ago say that, you know, real change always happens in an instant. It's all the like mm. the preceding hoo-ha that takes us forever to kind of get to the point. And almost, you know, it's almost like, well, whatever the modality is, it could be just a decision that you made or a terrible incident, or you've got a coaching session or you've been to hypnotherapy or whatever it happens to be. But the actual change is 
super quick. And is that is that your experience, or how do you how do you think about the actual? Uh, absolutely, every single uh, time. I, I I love that idea. If Tony created that, I'm I apologise that I haven't given him enough credit for it. But I thought it predated him, but yeah, the idea that change may take a long time it. coming, but it happens in a moment. That is my experience every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it speaks to the binary nature of our experience of life too. So when it comes to insecurity, insecurity is built on an assumption that you made when you were a child. So it's a work of fiction that you've been living as though it's fact. So to solve it it requires you to go back and review the data and observe whether your assumptions about your nature were correct as a child. So they're either going to be correct or they're going to be false. They can't be both. So that that has implications, severe implications, instant implications. You go back and turn all the lights on, look under every cover in every corner and every nook and cranny for this terrible part of your nature, and that means you deserve to be ashamed and, and feel guilty and that you're not worthy and you can't find it. It's not there. Well, in that moment, you get to go free. Or if you go and turn all the lights on and discover, oh, it's true. Yeah, I am a piece of shit. I was right. I'm no good cool. Well, then you die like right then and there. It's the end. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's an instant implication for doing this work. Um, but I like to think of... Oh, no, sorry, go. You get current. Well, I, I think about that in terms of trust as well, restored trust um, primarily with ourselves, but also with other people. You know, the old adage, it takes time to rebuild trust is a complete misunderstanding of the process. We don't trust people because they're dangerous. And they're dangerous because of an unresolved experience. And we assume because it's unresolved, it can happen again. So it makes sense to be guarded. But if you go back and fully resolve why that incident happened in the first place and are completely satisfied there's a believable plan, it won't happen again, well, then it makes no sense to be guarded anymore. In that moment, Mm -hmm. they're now safe. And if they're safe, the walls come down and welcome home. So the same in restoring relationship with ourselves, trust is rebuilt in a moment of, of when you go back and review the betrayal of self in the first place, understand it accurately, review, reconcile, apologize, apologize. Cool. Um, you're all good now. The space is clean again and you are safe within your relationship with yourself. Mm. Wow. You've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> that, that was very well articulated. Can I ask though, I mean, if, if you, if, when you think about, um, uh, one of the things I noticed when I, and this, again, this is, you know, a long time ago uh, when I was first doing my NLP training was, you know, NLP had some interesting um, techniques and strategies, but also I think real issues with people associating into traumatic experiences based on the skill of the practitioner. And I imagine in circumstances, you probably get you know, plenty of clients who perhaps come to you because there's been something incredibly traumatic um, in their past. How, where, are, how do you, and let's, you know, perhaps they're experiencing really significant um, uh, issues where you think, uh, I, I know, like, where's the boundary? Where do you find the boundary or how do you think about if there's, you know, significant traumatic experiences? Like, is there a, is there a time where you go, actually, it's not me that you need it's a psychiatrist, you need some medication plus some cognitive kind of work. Like how do you think about where the boundaries are for you if you get clients who are in really difficult experiences or or finding it difficult to get through them? Mm. My only boundary is if a client's in survival mode. So their level of consciousness is, is completely consumed with how do I not die? 
So they're so caught up in their traumatic experience of life right now that there's literally no room for rational thinking and yeah. questioning. They don't have any margins. So that is not a person I would coach, not ever. Mm-hmm. It's, there's just no value. Um, yeah. But if a person's not in survival mode, they can function as a human being. They've got some margins. There's some safety in their world. Then there is nothing that I wouldn't touch, not ever. Mm-hmm. Because what what my certainty is, is that their trauma is is stuck in in a place of misdirection and that's why it is so painful and while ever it's in this place of misdirection where they they have they're not sure about where the action took place or in fact they are sure about where the action took place but it's not where the action actually took place and because they've got it stored there in their psyche they are powerless to do anything other than suppress it or relive it or be continually taunted by it so yeah, I, I I do. I get invited into uh, all kinds of very difficult experiences, and and to be honest, um, they're all different experience, difficult experiences. Like every single human mm-hmm. has an yeah. existential crisis at some point in their life, whether it classifies as typical abuse or trauma or not. It's still traumatic um, for a child who thinks it's fine to be themselves and then realizes it's not, that's traumatic. Like that Mm -hmm. is, there's no other way of describing that other than a catastrophe that knocks them off their access and changes the future of their life. And it's stored as trauma because they separated from themselves in that moment. So yeah, I, I give me whatever, there's nothing that I wouldn't touch other than if you're in survival and you can't have the ability to think clearly about it. Thanks for sharing that. It was always something I was um, curious about. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, I imagine as you've been going through building these 15,000 hours, there's times where you've probably had to take a whole bunch of um, uh, creative and unconventional approaches, you know, things that you'd never really thought of before where you're like, wow, I really got to think about this differently. You know, what, what Can you share a time where you've had to really kind of um, experiment in real time or what's the most sort of unconventional or creative approach you've had to take? to helping a client, you know, kind of unstick uh, where they might've been at. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, so two that stick in my mind and probably in the last couple of years that I, I, it's always fun experience hearing myself say something I've never said before in a coaching setting, because it happens less and less, but two that stick out in my mind was the first time I identified the student trap. So I'm coaching a client. We're talking about some pretty traumatic stuff. We're going back into the past, reviewing the data and the stuff that I'm saying is being met with the language and the patterning uh, of a student. So, so we're talking big stuff, and his response is, "Okay, mm-hmm. oh yes, no that that's good. Yes, that makes sense. Okay, all right." I'm like, "You're like mm. <laughs> something strange about that response." It's the response. An appropriate response will be far more dramatic, one way or the other. There'll be either a high level of resistance, offence upset or a profound awakening that changes everything just this middle uh-huh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. good yes like oh wow um that sounds like what a student would do if they think that the aim of the game is to learn content and understand the content and repeat the content mm. and i thought hang on but the best student doesn't naturally naturally automatically transition into a practitioner Mm. i've got friends who are lifelong students and i've never done anything with what they've learned and it's hiding in plain sight because 
you know, they're, they're committed to the learning process and diving into that stuff, but they're insulated themselves from ever taking action. So all I did was just reflect that back to that client and just said, did you notice what I said and how you responded? And can you see the mismatch? If you were just to zoom out from that a moment and watch somebody else get, you know, hear this for the very first time and you watch them respond in a really plastic um kind of middle of the road way what what would you assume is going on so that i use that um frequently because that's a, a common place people get stuck in the student trap they all yeah. of a sudden get scared and unconsciously divert into oh so now this is about learning knowledge so i'll now be a student i'll, I'll yeah. get it right there's a right answer and a wrong i'll answer. just write all this down i'll uh, i'll think about this some other time yeah yeah so if, so a fun way that I call people out is sometimes a, a student, a student, a client will will unconsciously feel the need to record the session. Jamie, could, would it be okay if we could record this session so I could listen to it again? I'm like, ah, no way in the world, no way in the world. You're not recording this session. You are not a student. You are here right now, and everything you need for this moment in time is here right now. And then you can access me again, and we'll have another conversation. You are not recording this. That will not serve you. Um, similar, you know, but different is uh, I developed the the three strikes and you're out rule, which is um, the first time I heard a client ask me a question that they'd already asked me three times. I went, "Hmm, this is strange." Is what happens <laughs> next if I answer this question that I've already answered two times before? Now we're playing games. Now we're pretending that we haven't already had this conversation. And now we're going to drop out of the real world into some pretend world. So I'll, I'll lose the leverage. First, the first two times you're thinking, well, the first time obviously is the first time. The second time you're thinking, well, maybe they needed to hear it in a different way. And of course. Then, first time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. First time it is my job to explain something as thoroughly, completely yeah. as possible until they get it. And definitely they're going to go, you know, that thing, I just, can we just go through that? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Let me explain it. Let me give you another story. Let me, Yeah. if we're having that same conversation three times, (laughs) hang on, what's going on now? Now you're pretending. Now you're afraid. Now you've got all that you need, but you don't want to act on it. And if I, if I explain this to you a third time, now I'm buying into your bullshit story and now I'm not serving you anymore. So I will not explain this to you a third time. And to call them on that and to have fun with that and to set a precedent. And and then off the back of that, I'll sometimes give client an exit. So even though they've signed a client agreement with me, uh, even though they've committed to a process, I'll just say, and by the way, like um, you are welcome to run away right now if that's what you would like to do. And I will not hold you here against your will because I don't work harder than you. So are you sure you still want this? Yeah. What's happening for you is a high level of resistance you are in a state where you are shutting down and I can't open you up. I can't make you see what you don't want to see. So I would hate to keep forcing stuff to you that you are not ready to receive. So I would much prefer that you exit your client agreement. You pay me no more money yeah. you run away and we have no more conversations. Yeah. And for me to have to repeat myself and take you to a place you don't want to go. As you said, I think, you know, the, the coaches that fall into the trap of that are the ones that are still trying to figure it out, are desperate to further more work, are worried about what happens if I don't keep this client. It's like, well, that's not serving the client. That's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I share that philosophy uh, wholeheartedly. I don't have any, you know, my, my client agreements are all get out of it. You know, it, every single session, if every single session is not valuable, just 
tear it up tomorrow and <laughs> we'll be done. Um, but you know, I need to be on the hook for value and so do you. Like I don't work with yeah. clients who don't take action. That would be the worst thing, worst way to spend my time uh, ever. Mm. <clears throat> Jay, I know we're about um, out of time. I do have two final questions for you. What is the biggest misconception that people have when it comes to insecurity? Uh, it's, it still would be that it's, it's not solvable, that it's just part mm. of the human experience that we're broken. We're wounded. Um, I had a psychologist that I interviewed recently on the show and I didn't publish the episode cause it was terrible. Um, but he was like, yeah, we can't fully be healed. Like we're wounded and we're those wounds be will become Ooh. scars. And so, um, you know, you carry the pain with you and insecurity is the kind of same. It's just, it's part of the difficulty of being a human being. We, um, we're fragile and frail beings. And so insecurity is just, it's a part of the thing. So the best you can do is, is develop strategies to manage it. I think that's still yeah. seen as best practice thinking when it comes to insecurity. Um, it's yeah, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't right. stack up under any scrutiny when you yeah. understand what insecurity really is. Yeah. Jamin, I have I have so enjoyed this uh conversation uh with you. Thank you for being so open and willing to just let me go wherever I wanted to go. That's been really <laughs> insightful for me. And hopefully there's some uh things in your audience that they maybe didn't know or got to hear in a different way that's really um helped them. Is there anything else that you wish I'd asked you? today because uh, it's something yeah concerning. well you said you had two final questions and you only answered asked me one so i that was the second one <laughs> <laughs> okay that's technically uh, a question is there anything well else yeah okay I can i could i finish by answering uh a question that you asked me at the very start that i yes. i talked too long and didn't answer just back to parenting yes definitely because when we're in austin texas we're we're reading Texas barbecue and we had to line up for a long time to get this delicious brisket, which was well worth it. We, we met this young couple in the line and became friends with them. And, and the young guy, Randy, uh, he wasn't Randy. That was just his name. He may have been Randy. Very I, Texan, I didn't ask him. Perfectly Texan name too. Perfectly yeah. Texan name. <laughs> uh, when he found out I'm a personal development author and he, and this is my life, he was just, he had pumped me full of questions and was so fascinated and bought my book straight away online. And and then he turned to Elliot. It's like, wow, you know, it must be incredible having um, this guy as your dad. And, you know, what's what's the most incredible life lesson he's ever taught you? And Elliot's like, eh, yeah, I don't know, actually. Like nothing I can think of. And, and I, I knew that's what he would say, and yeah. I loved that that's what he said. And and I loved watching myself in that situation just go, um, I don't own this boy. He's mm. gifted into my world. Um, I may get to be useful to him. I think I will be useful to him. I think the net effect of my parenting will be really good. I think he'll be really glad that I was his dad. Um, but I my sense of self is not tied to whether he understands anything I say or I, I actually don't. I don't need him to validate me as a dad. Um, and, and so so that is how I think about parenting. I think, yeah, I've got him for a short time. I don't own him and he's not tied to me and we get to have some fun together. But I don't know how it will turn out. I don't know how he will turn out. He's got his whole his choices. And if I, my best chance of being useful to him is to not need him to be a certain way. 
Um, I think I'll already be very difficult. I, I think I'll create some really big challenges for him just because of the level that I operate and the intensity that I bring and the wholeheartedness and how much I've developed my character and the level of my consciousness. It's very different from him. Like mm. it's it's another stratosphere. Like it, it, we 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 rarely are having conversations about the same thing in the same way. And I I feel that'll be difficult for him to kind of go well, dad's here and I'm here and could I ever be there? And maybe that'll create a bunch of insecurity for him. So I think my best chance for him is to kind of just turn it down a bit and to <laughs> just to be his dad and um, and not get it perfect and not be right all the time, not dominate him with the strength yeah. of my wisdom or my character. And um, I don't know if you've heard me talk about the, the perfect parent paradox, but I think the two greatest challenges that the two most difficult parents to break free from are the absent parent and the perfect parent and the parent that kind of half asses their way through life is actually the parent most likely to allow their child to assume they could do it better hmm. so the easiest child the easiest parent to break free from uh, if we're going back to freud's idea that breaking free from the nest is the single greatest challenge for every human being yeah um, Jeez, man, I needed to hear that at the moment. That's really, um, that's really, <laughs> that's so good because I've got a 17 and a half year old. And so we are right, right in the center of the breaking free of the nest process. <laughs> uh, and uh, lots for me to think about, but I, I agree with you. And you know, the reality is he already knows that you have all those things. And yeah. so at some point when they become relevant at the time where he can hear it and he needs it and he can apply it straight away, like that's when, you know, uh, that's when you're so excited as a parent that you've got that thing and that you can help them in that space. But That'd be like us all doing an MBA at the age of 17 with absolutely no way to apply any of it. Of so like I remember doing a management degree at university and going, surely this is for like 40 year olds. Like I'm not going to be doing any of this stuff. <laughs> and I don't remember any of it. <laughs> I, get, I go out of that into like a call center job or something. It's like, well, it's a bit of a disconnect. Uh, yeah. It'll be relevant when it's relevant. It will. Thank you, mate. That was, um, oh, that thank was a you. real joy. Um Anything you want to leave your audience with or it seems like a good place to wrap it up there? Lovely place. Yeah, thank you. That was some really great questions and uh, I appreciate that space to get to share some of that stuff. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Jamie.